Would you turn with me, please, to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke? And I'd like to begin reading with verse uh, 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done, a cor- uh, done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is the aftermath of the uh, birth of our Lord. I spent a lot of time this week just reading over this passage and pondering it, uh, thinking about it. And uh, my mind went off uh, in a lot of different uh, directions. But there was one, one primary thought that kept coming back to me again and again. This is, as I've uh, entitled this text, the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. Uh, this, uh, this series of events described here in Luke 2 come right at the juncture between the Old Testament perception of Messiah and the New Testament and the new revelation that we have uh, in, that, uh, in that new covenant. Now let me explain. The uh, praise hymn sang a few minutes uh, ago a few words from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I want you to understand that God did not begin to love us when he sent his son. The whole point of John 3.16 is that he has always loved us so much that he, uh, he sent his son. He has loved the world of people from, from the very beginning. The book of Genesis makes that very clear. The purpose of creation was so God could have someone to love. 
When God said uh, that he created, and uh, when Moses describes the creation and says that God said, it, it's good, it's good, it's good, uh, what he meant was it's good in terms of man. In certain contexts, that word good can mean beautiful, and that's, uh, that seems to be the idea in Genesis. God looked at what he had created, and he said, oh, that's, that's beautiful. Men and women are going to love that. Everything he did, he did for us. But uh, Genesis records that sad day where the man and the woman turned their back on God and walked away from that, uh, from that love. And from that point on through the book of Genesis, the writers trace God's relentless attempts to track us down and, and set things right and restore that intimacy and call us back into relationship with him. And what you have in the Old Testament is a flood of uh, intimations and hints and Rumors and suggestions and, and sometimes explicit statements pointing uh, to the fact that w- one day someone is coming to set things right. There are two elements in the Old Testament that make it abundantly clear that God loves us and he's coming after us. The first is the rituals of the Old Testament. And second is the presence of this wonderful body of men and women that are described uh, in Isaiah and other places as the remnant, the people of God. Uh, in the Old Testament, the ritual and the remnant. Uh, The one ritual that comes to mind is uh, that of the sacrifice of the the spotless lamb. Uh, The sacrificer was to select a a lamb that had no blemish, prefigures the perfection of our Lord, his sinless character. And... uh, he would place his hands on the head of that lamb and he would confess his sins and the sins of the family and then the animal would be, would be offered up on behalf of, of, that, of that sinful uh, worshiper. Now, it wasn't that lamb that took away the sin of the world. That lamb was yet to come. But that lamb symbolized in ritual the coming of that perfect, sinless, pure lamb of God who once for all uh, paid the price for, uh, for our sins. And then uh, you also see in the Old Testament those uh, wonderful men and women of faith who really took seriously what God said and they kept looking forward to the consolation of Israel, that time when God would, would comfort people's hearts by the coming of, of his uh, Messiah. There's a wonderful story in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 22, of Abraham and his, his little boy, Isaac, making their way up the side of what today is the city of of Jerusalem, up toward the top of Calvary, which is a spur. It's uh, one part of the uh, the mountain. It's called Mount Zion, on which the city of Jerusalem is located today. As he made his way to the top of that uh, mountain, uh, 2,000 years before our Lord came, the little boy said to Abraham, Father, uh, here's, the, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, uh, Son, the Lord will see to it. He'll see to it. He'll provide. And when they came to the top of the mountain, instead of sacrificing that uh, little boy, there was a ram caught in the bushes. And and that lamb took the place of that boy. And and he bore, symbolically, the sins of that boy and that family. And, And in memory of that event, Abraham called the mountain Mount Moriah, the place where God sees to it, where he where he provides. And you have this little hint early on, that someday on that mountain, the mountain where God provides, he would indeed provide uh, salvation.
And uh, you just, uh, all the way through the Old Testament, you get these, these intimations, these hints that God is at work, that he loves us dearly, that he's pursuing us relentlessly. He'll do anything he can uh, to bring us to himself. Now, you have the same two elements working in this, uh, in this passage. The thing that I saw as I read through this passage is the presence of those rituals, again, that point toward the perfection and the beauty of our Lord Jesus. And then that, uh, that wonderful remnant here embodied in two people, Simeon and, and Anna. I thought of uh, uh, what Malachi said, or the Lord speaking through Malachi said, Then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who thought upon his name. And the Lord said, These are mine. And you have uh, these two wonderful examples of people that, that belong to, uh, to him. Now let's look at, the, uh, look at the passage. The first thing that catches our attention is the presence of two, two rituals. Uh, the naming of our Lord in circumcision, which is really one event, and his presentation in the temple, which is the second uh, uh, ritual. When the time came to name the little, the little boy when he was eight days uh, old, uh, in connection with his circumcision, he was also named. Now, that's always a momentous uh, event when parents get together and try to decide what to, what to name their children. We had names uh, picked out for, for our children long before they were, they were born, alternates in case they were girls instead of boys, or boys instead of girls. And uh, that's something that uh, you have to give a lot of thought to. But Mary and Joseph didn't have to think about it at all because God himself named his son. The angel made it very clear to both Mary and, and Joseph that their little boy's name was to be called Jesus. Now, that, uh, that's not a new name. That name is rich in, uh, in memories, or would be for any Israelite. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. That's all it is. It's, it's the name Joshua. Joshua, you know, was, was Israel's uh, general, the one who, humanly speaking, uh, uh, enabled them to uh, take the land of, of Canaan and take full possession of that, uh, of that place. He was born in Egypt. Uh, he was given the name when he was born, Hoshea. Uh, his parents called him Salvation. Hoshea is just a noun. It means uh, salvation. And actually was the form of, uh, is in the form of a prayer. It's a a sigh, a kind of sob, because at the time Joshua was born, his parents were in slavery in Egypt. Life was very, very hard, and they named him really as a form of, uh, of their own longing and yearning, salvation, please. And after God delivered that whole nation from slavery in Egypt and set them free as they were standing on the on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to, uh, uh, actually at, at uh, uh, Kadesh Barnea, as they were ready to go into the land, Moses uh, changed uh, Hoshea's name from Hoshea to Yah-Hoshea. Yah is a shortened form of God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh saves. Now, what a, what a wonderful name for our Lord. Uh, the Lord saves, because it sums up in one expression, what he came to do. He is the only Savior who can set us free from our sins. 
Then uh, in, in connection with his naming, he was also circumcised. Now, circumcision is uh, uh, just a simple uh, surgical procedure, uh, simple for the physician, not for the uh, baby. Um, but uh, it doesn't amount to a great deal. It is today a hygienic uh, measure, widely uh, practiced, accepted and practiced, and it was in the ancient Near East. For the same reasons, for hygienic reasons, they circumcised their uh, little boys. This was true all over the ancient world. It wasn't just Jews, Israelites, that circumcised their, their boys. Uh, there are really only a couple of nations that didn't. The Greeks didn't. The Egyptians didn't. That's why uh, the Philistines, or excuse me, the Egyptians did. The Philistines didn't. Uh, that, that's why the Philistines are referred to in the Old Testament as the uncircumcised Philistines, because that, that was extraordinary. It was unusual. But with the Israelites, God did something very special. He gave that surgical procedure a very special significance. Now, it's not fully explained in the Old Testament. But uh, you begin to get the idea as you read through the Old Testament. You come to the prophecy of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah talks about uh, people who are circumcised as being uncircumcised. And he said, you need to circumcise your heart. And you begin to see that it wasn't the physical operation that was important. It was what it signified. It signified something internal. The heart needed to be, uh, needed to be circumcised. Something needed to be cut off. And when you come to the New Testament, in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us what, uh, what circumcision signified. It signified the cutting off of oneself from, from the flesh. In the Old Testament economy, uh, circumcision signified being taken out of, out of the world and placed into the people of God. And in the New Testament, it signifies the same thing. It signifies our identification with, with Christ and and being placed into him. Today, the operation, the physical operation itself, doesn't have any spiritual significance. You can be circumcised or uncircumcised. The important thing is, is the heart. You see, what's going on in, in here? Uh, as, as Peter puts it in, in his, uh, his little epistle, uh, that what happens to us is when we're identified with Christ, is that we no longer live according to the lust of the flesh. We have a new beginning. There's a new life that's given to us, a new outlook, a new perspective. And we begin to will God's will along with him. See, that's what characterized our Lord. That's why his circumcision is so significant. It's because it really was the keynote of his life. He, he said, I don't do anything that I don't see the Father doing. Whatever I hear the Father speak, that's what I, that's what I say. Uh, without him, I can do nothing. Uh, he always willed what the Father willed. And, of course, the consummation of that commitment was in the garden when he had to face the cross. And he didn't want to die. He didn't want to face the pain of that cross. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but yours be done. You see, that's, what's, that's what circumcision signifies, the circumcision of the heart. It ought to, to be true of us as well, that uh, we're willing to say, not my will, but yours uh, be done. What it means is that we cannot justify disobedience any longer. We may be assaulted by temptation and we may fall, but we can't defend, we can't protect, we can't justify uh, disobedience. There's no way we can defend an adulterous affair. There's no way we can, can defend an unforgiving heart. There, there's no way we can protect or justify swindling and cheating others in order to to get our own way. We can't any longer live 
according to the passions and lusts of the flesh. We can't justify pornography. We can't justify lustful thoughts. We can't do that any longer because we've been cut off from that old life. We've begun a new life and we've been joined uh, with Christ and therefore we will what he, what he wills. Now that's the first ritual, the naming and the circumcision and you can see it in our Lord's case. He, in his name, signifies what he came to do to save us and uh, in this act of circumcision we see the means by which he saved us. It is that willing submission to the will of the Father even though it meant uh, going to... Uh, going to his, uh, to his death. The second ritual is the appearance uh, at the temple. When the child was 40 days of age, they were, uh, it was taken to the temple and presented to the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. And a sacrifice was offered at that time. Now, the presentation signifies, signified placing the child in the priesthood. According to the book of Exodus, uh, God's people were told that every firstborn male belonged to God. They were to be sanctified, consecrated, and set apart to God as, as priests. God's original intention is that the whole nation would be a priesthood. A priest is someone who stands between God and, and human beings. He represents the human race to God, and he represents God to the human race. He, he is a, a, a living exhibition of what God is like. In that sense, he represents God to, uh, to those that he ministers to. And he represents people before God. He intercedes uh, for them. This is what, uh, what the whole nation was called to be and to do. That was their ministry to the world, to be priests. And as a way of signifying that ministry, the firstborn was consecrated uh, as a priest. And then later that was changed to uh, another order. The Levites uh, took the place of the firstborn in the book, book of Leviticus. Moses said, the Levites shall be consecrated to the Lord in the place of the firstborn. And uh, it wonderfully pictures this presentation of our Lord at the, temp- at the temple, wonderfully pictures his high priestly ministry. He is our uh, priest, always available to us. He represents us before God. He always lives to make intercession for us. He represents God before us. If you want to see you want to see what God is like, just, just watch Jesus and the way he deals uh, with people. And he's such a wonderfully compassionate, patient priest. He understands us as no one else uh, does. Hebrews says he's not a priest who is untouched by the feelings of our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to have no money to pay, pay one's bills. He knows what it's like the struggle in relationships. He knows what it's like to be criticized. Uh, he understands the, the struggles against temptation that we, that we have. He experienced them all. You have to take Hebrews at, at face value. There's no temptation that you face that he hasn't already faced. He didn't sin, but he understood fully the onslaughts of, of temptation, and therefore he understands our weakness. He can be wonderfully compassionate and so patient, tender with us when we come. That's why... Hebrews says we can come boldly uh, into his presence to find help uh, in time of need. And then, uh, again, as a part of this presentation in the temple, a sacrifice was offered. In the Old Testament economy, a mother and her child were considered unclean for seven days after the birth of the child. Why? Well, uh, because the child was unclean. (laughs) 
all the way through the Old Testament. The writers of, the, uh, of that portion of our Bible are, are very, very realistic about, uh, uh, about uh, our sinfulness. We are sinful in our origins. When we talk about original sin, we're not saying that people uh, sin in very original mean, uh, in very original ways. We're just saying that, that we come into the world uh, sinful. We're like a baseball with a spin on it. And sooner or later, that spin breaks away from, away from God. Uh, as David puts it in Psalm 51, I was sinful from the moment I was conceived. You, he says to God, desire integrity in the innermost part. He's talking about his mother's womb. You looked for truth and integrity in me, and what you saw was sinfulness. As I've said before, uh, total depravity means that uh, sin touches us in, in all of our totality. There's no part of us. It's not touched in some, in some way by sin. If sin were blue, we would be some shade of blue all over. We'd be, we're tinged with it. We can't get away from it. We come into the world uh, sinful. The whole book of Proverbs is predicated on that fact. The children have to be taught and trained and corrected. But even that training doesn't do the trick. We, uh, we, we still are willful and we will go our own way. There's only one answer and that's a sacrifice. You see, only a sacrifice can change our sinfulness, do something about it, set, begin to set us free. And uh, that's why in, in Jewish economy, a mother and her child were to present themselves to the, to the temple and offer that sacrifice. Again, it prefigures the coming of our Lord Jesus and his death in which he deals with the problem of our, of our human uh, depravity and sets us free from, from sin's bondage. And uh, when Mary and Joseph came to offer that, uh, that sacrifice, they were so poor. Uh, they, they could only offer a, turtle, a couple of turtle doves and and two pigeons. That was the arrangement that was made for those that were poverty-stricken. They couldn't, they couldn't afford a lamb. And so they brought uh, these four birds, and they were sacrificed on their behalf. And as I thought of that, I thought of the terribly humiliating, humbling sacrifice of our Lord. Uh, there was nothing glorious about that cross. It was a terribly humiliating thing. Paul says in Philippians 2 that though he was God, he humbled himself to become a man. And then he further humbled himself as a man, becoming obedient unto death, even a death on a cross. There was no glory in that cross. There was only, uh, only shame. Uh, praise him saying about his, his, uh, that he came from, from riches to rags. This is not a rags to riches story. It's the other way around. As Paul puts it, he who was rich for our sake became poor, that we through his poverty might uh, become rich. And so as you look at those rituals, uh, you begin to see something again of, of, of what our, our Lord is and what he, what he did. His nature is Savior. That's what he came, uh, that's what he came to do. Uh, his, the way by which he became the Savior was through his willing submission, even to death, the humiliating, humbling death of a cross. And he provided salvation on that basis. And now he lives, he ever lives, as Hebrews puts, puts it, to make intercession for us. Just a little thumbnail sketch in this ritual of who our Lord is, what he did, and what he, he continues to be on our uh, behalf. Then Luke uh, turns to these two uh, wonderful uh, old saints, Simeon and 
and Anna. Uh, actually, uh, all the way through the Nativity story, we've had a parade of Old Testament saints, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, John's parents, and then Mary and, and Joseph, Jesus' parents, and now finally Simeon and Anna, three men and, and three women. And you can see something in, in, the, uh, in the actions and in the words of this man and this woman that are revelatory. They take us a step further in understanding who our Lord is and what he, what he came to do. Now, some interesting things are said about Simeon. First, he was righteous, which has to do with his relationship before men and women. And he uh, was devout. That, is, that has to do with his relationship before God. And it seems to me that that ought to characterize all of us, that like Paul, we ought to be void of offense toward God and, and man. Paul says, herein I do exercise myself to be void of offense toward God and man. He, that isn't always true. Isn't always, we aren't always capable of uh, being without offense, but that ought to be the inclination of, of our hearts keeping short accounts with one another, asking for forgiveness, dealing with these, uh, with these differences that, that separate us, both in terms of our relationship to one another and our relationship with, uh, with God. There's a wonderful simplicity in that. That's really all God asks of us. As a result of the power that we have because of an indwelling spirit, we can be righteous uh, and devout, growing uh, in, in, uh, in grace. And then... Uh, the second uh, uh, characteristic of Simeon was that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The word just means comfort. He was waiting to be comforted. In the Old Testament, uh, there, there are a number of indications that when Messiah came, he would come during a time of terrible uh, trial for Israel. It's descri- described as time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is just another name for, for Israel. And indeed, that's, that, that was true. Uh, Israel was suppressed. They were under Rome's uh, thumb. They had no king. They had no kingdom. These were very difficult times for God's people. And they were waiting for the consolation, the comfort that would come when, when uh, God's Christ would, would make his appearance. In a couple of weeks, we're going to turn again to the book of Isaiah. And chapter 40 opens with those words, comfort, comfort my people. Speak comfortably to Israel. Tell them that their warfare is over. They've received double for their sins. Uh, This is God's word to his people. And when Messiah comes, there will be forgiveness of sin. And there will be be this wonderful comfort that the Father of of comfort provides. And he was waiting uh, for that. And uh, so are we. So are we. We live in troubled times. This is the time of Jacob's trouble for us as well. And the Bible, again, makes it clear that the world's not going to get better. It's going to get worse and things will be tough. But there's that wonderful comfort in having Christ walk with us through our trials today and the assurance of his coming back to set everything right. That's what we look forward to. One of the marks of, of someone who understands is that they look for his appearing. Paul said at the end of his life, I finished the, uh, the race, I've kept the faith, I fought a good fight. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to everyone who loves his appearing. See? In other words, we don't put our roots down into this, our culture. 
There are happy times here and serendipitous occasions when we really have joy and excitement and wonder. And this is one of those, those periods. A lot of joy in this period, but uh, life's also very tragic. We have to face that fact. But uh, wonder of wonders. Someday he's going to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to comfort us. And Paul says, and looking forward to that ultimate comfort, we can comfort one another now. Uh, with those with those words, uh, there is a uh, a third uh, statement made about uh, Simeon. We're told that some prophet had told him that he wouldn't die before he saw the Lord's uh, Christ. Another indication that all of us are immortal till our our work is done. Death is not an accident. Uh, our Lord preserves our life until the moment that. Uh, uh, our ministry, our mission is accomplished, and then he takes us home, and this was true of, uh, of Simeon. Uh, and when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple, Simeon took him in his arms. The, uh, the, the word that Luke uses for arms is the word for a bent arm. And you get a picture of this, uh, this gentle old saint who was moved by the Holy Spirit to show up at the temple when Mary and Joseph came with the child, taking that child in his arm like this and looking down into that little face, 40 days old, that's all the older our Lord was at that time, looking down into that little face and saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Now, unfortunately, most of the translations put the now down a ways in the paragraph. Actually, Simeon's words begin with that word now. Now. That's the, that's, that's the most important word in, in, his, uh, uh, in this little hymn that he composes. Now. As a matter of fact, that's why in liturgy this, this uh, hymn is called the Nunc Dimittis, Latin for now, Sovereign Lord. It's the now that's important. And do you realize what was going on? He picks up this little child, and he looks down into this little face, and he says, now I can die in peace because my Lord has come. And I couldn't help but think that I, that I could say the same thing. And I, I felt very sorry and still feel very sorry for those who are facing death and have never seen our Lord Jesus. I would not want to be in that place. I, I would be very frightened and fearful of death. But I can honestly say, and, and many of you here can say as well, now I can die in peace. I've seen the Lord. Seen him in the sense that I've seen him spiritually. And, and I know that he is the resurrection and the life. And I know that by believing in him, I have eternal life. And I can tell you honestly, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not really excited about the pain that's associated with with death, I don't think any of us are, but I'm honestly not afraid to die. I look forward to it with great joy. And you see, it's that child that, that brought life and immortality to light. That's the good news. And Simeon could look at that little baby and he could say, this is it. This is what I've been looking for all my life. This is the one who has freed me from death. Now, he says, I can, uh, I can die in I can die in peace. And then he has what amounts to, uh, it seems to me, to be a very chilling prediction. 
Verse 34, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. It will be a sign that is a sign pointing to God that will be spoken against. That's all our Lord did. He came and he acted as we would expect God to act if he came uh, to earth. He was the visible expression of the invisible God. And he always dealt with people fairly. Kind, there was a great deal of kindness and patience and tolerance and love. And, and he was a perfect man in every, every uh, uh, sense in which we define perfection. And yet people hated him. They opposed him. And they killed him. And that's what uh, Simeon is referring to when he says a sword will pierce your heart as well. He was thinking uh, uh, prophetically toward the future when our Lord would hang on the cross and Mary would stand at his feet and that sword would be thrust right through her heart when she saw her son uh, dying there. You remember in Isaiah, uh, I mentioned the metaphor that that Isaiah uses of the Messiah. He's like a rock in your path that you keep falling over. You fall over him and you skin your shins and you bruise your knees and you fall flat on your face and you, you can't get away from him. Every time you turn around, there's Jesus. And some of you are experiencing that. You can't get away from him. You would like to, but you can't. Keep falling over him and falling over him. And uh, you have one of two choices. You can either stand up and curse him or you can stand up and, and fall at your knees and, and on your knees and worship him. See, and that, that's what Simeon means. When you just can't take Jesus lightly. You can't be neutral about him when you see him. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing in these past weeks in this nativity series is just taking a hard look at who our, our Lord is. You just can't get away from him. And you have to decide, will you, will you bless him? See? Will you embrace him? Will you trust him? Will you worship him? Will you adore him? As the angels and, and the truly wise men did, or will you curse him and walk away from him? Can't, can't be neutral, see. Now, uh, the other uh, Old Testament type saint in verse 36 is Anna, who's described here as very, very old. Looks a little bit ambiguous uh, here. You'll notice in the footnote or side note that we're a bit uncertain how to translate this uh, this phrase, she either lived as a widow until she was 84. She, we know she was married for seven years. And she either lived until she was 84, unmarried after uh, her, the end of her, for, uh, end of her marriage, or she was a widow for 84 years. And that's a very real possibility, which would mean that she was, uh, she was 104 or 106 when, uh, when she died. And several things occurred to me as I read about uh, Anna, just, just this very brief sketch of her life. We don't know anything more about her than, than what Luke tells us here. She, she was in the, in the temple all day. Uh, as G. Campbell Morgan puts it so uh, quaintly in his commentary, she never missed a service. She was always there. And she was worshiping and praying. And, and several things came to mind as I read that. She's so highly commended here, one of God's choice women. It just struck me that we don't know anything about her ministry. There, there's one prophetic utterance that, that she gave, apparently. And it uh, just hit me again that the really important thing, the thing that matters more than anything else, is just worshiping our Lord and loving Him. That, that, that's, that's, that's the main thing. Uh, we, we get so confused, we feel that we just got to stay busy. Busyness is the name of the game for most, most Christians. And, and we just need to remember again that what really matters is centering on the Lord and, 
worshiping Him and, and loving Him. That's hard for me. It's much easier for me to find my worth in busyness, find my worth in ministry. But believe me, there's no worth in ministry. There's no worth in your business. There's no worth in your busyness. We'll only feel good about ourselves when we learn to see ourselves uh, as God sees us and we center on him and we love him and we worship him. Second thing I would say about uh, Anna is that you cannot outgrow the grace of God. Here's this uh, wonderful senior citizen, uh, at least 84 and maybe 104, who was continuing to grow in grace. Some of you may have seen the article in in uh, Sports Illustrated some months ago about the 84-year-old marathoner. I've forgotten his name. Uh, I tried to find it uh, yesterday and couldn't locate the magazine or his name. All I recall is the, is the last line of the... Uh, uh, of the article on this uh, old gentleman. He runs in the Boston Marathon every year, and he, he, of course he plays his way down, but he always finishes, or almost always finishes, and he continues to run. And, and uh, the bottom line, the bottom line was a quote from this old gentleman. He said, the best part of growing old is, is growing. And uh, I thought, that's, that's true of us. We can keep on growing in grace. You never get too old to know God better. You never get so old that you're beyond the, the power of God. You can always be useful, even in your old age. So just, just keep on growing. Don't quit. The other thing that struck me is the premium that God puts on being single. I hope you understand that. Unfortunately, the church has overlooked the single population uh, of, of, of the body. If I read 1 Corinthians 7 right, and I think I do, Paul is actually saying that singleness is the preferred state. If God calls you to be married, by all means be married. But if God calls you to be single, you are not a second-class citizen. Uh, our Lord was single. Paul was single. And they used their lives to serve. And so instead of panicking when, when you're unmarried and thinking, I've got to find a man or I've got to find a woman or I'll never be be satisfied, you can, as, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, remain with God. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be lonely. It doesn't mean you won't hurt. It doesn't mean that, you, that the urge to merge is diminished. That's, that's, not, that's not what happens. You may, you may be very lonely, but you can use that singleness to, to serve. God will magnify himself uh, in your ministry. Well, uh, in looking back over this text, I just see these two things. You see the character of our Lord and his work depicted in, in the ritual, and you see these wonderful men and women of, of faith who responded in, in belief to what our Lord uh, came to do. I want to go back to the statement that, uh, of Simeon's and apply it to us as people that know and, and love the Lord Jesus. You know, uh, there is something about taking a good hard look at the Lord that brings out what's in us. See, the reason people crucified Jesus is not because he did anything wrong. It's because they saw how wrong they were. And uh, you know, we, we can't stand before Jesus and say, I want to be rich. Or I want to be powerful. Or I want to be well known in this world. Or I want to be happy regardless of what, you, what you've told me about 
about happiness. We, we can't do that. Just, just looking into the face of Jesus causes us to see ourselves as, as we really are. And, and I hope that's what this nativity, uh, this Advent series has done for you, as you've taken this good hard look at, at our Lord and you've seen what he's done for us, then you, you've wanted to present your body as a living sacrifice to him, say. People don't reject Christ for intellectual reasons. I, I, I'm convinced of that. They reject Christ for moral reasons. It's because their own sinfulness has shown up for what it is. And, uh, and, and those of us that have acknowledged him as Lord need to take that lordship very seriously, too. When we look at him and he says, this is my will for you. This is my good and acceptable and perfect will, even though it means pain and even though it means suffering and even though it may mean death. If we're truly following him, then we need to will his will. And what I would like for us to do this morning as we gather around this this cross and we begin to celebrate his death is to ask the Spirit of God to search our hearts and see if there is any wicked way in us.